Hello and welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice podcast. My name is Ralph Cree. This is brought to you in association with bodyheartmindspirit.co.uk. In this episode, I talk to my friend Yeshe, who's had a very interesting life um, and has a very interesting life now and I imagine will continue to have a very interesting life. The two main themes we talked about today were her time visiting India, uh, which she did for over the period of several years, um, and also her life living off-grid, which she's done most of her adult life. Um, these are two things that quite a lot of people are interested in, uh, going to India, experiencing Indian spirituality, um, and so because she's done it uh, for quite a long time, uh, had lots of interesting experiences, met uh, different teachers, um, Tibetan gurus and Indian gurus, um, done lots of different spiritual practices and stuff out there. Um, she's got some very interesting things to say about it and how you, know, you might achieve that kind of trip if you want to do that by coming, you know, earning money at home, traveling, coming back, earning money, traveling. And she had this um, kind of off-grid lifestyle at home which is very very simple living in yurts uh, benders which are it's a handmade tent that you make out of uh, tree saplings and tarpaulins um, and then for the last 12 years she's lived in a roundhouse which she built um, with her partner living completely off grid um, in Wales and we talk about her experience living off grid how you might do it uh, what are the great things about living off-grid, what are some of the challenges um, and then uh, at the end of the conversation we wrap it up with a little exploration of psychedelics because that's uh, something that Yeshe and myself have been um, enthusiasts of for our, our lives um, and uh, she in particular had this interesting experience where she went out and was John Lilly's carer uh, for a bit of time uh, in Hawaii and uh, for those of you who are enthusiastic of psychedelics, I'm sure you will have heard of John Lilly. Uh, he was someone who invented the um, sensory deprivation flotation tanks. Um, so I thought this was a very interesting conversation and um, I hope you enjoy it too. Um, so Yeshe. Welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice podcast. Hey, hi, well, nice to be here, Ralph. Yeah. yeah. So. so we've known each other for, uh, I think, 11 years. Well, basically, as long as I've been together with my wife, as you are childhood mm. friends. And mm. um, you've had a very interesting life and you currently mm. live a very interesting life. And so two specific areas that I thought we could explore today um, mm. because so one of them is you went to India for a long time mm. and really went for that so a lot of people they think oh I'd like to go to to India to you know um, <clears throat> explore Eastern spirituality yoga those sort of things but quite, mm. it's quite common for people to just dip their toe in but you you dip mm. your whole body in right you're over your head <laughs> <Into it. laughs> and then yeah. and then the other thing um is you for a long time have had an off-grid life um mm. 
and that's another thing i mean a lot of people um who who are interested in living off grid um mm. and again you know a lot of people dip their toes in it go on the old kind of glamping holiday or those sort of things yeah, but yeah. um you have lived this full time for a long time um so Indeed. it's the kind of yeah. you've got a, a depth of experience with these two things that i thought mm. would be really interesting to explore and mm. possibly very helpful for other people who were thinking about doing either of these things you know to hear yeah. hear your story yeah. so that's how's that sound <clears throat> yeah great great yeah let's go cool okay yeah. let's go i like it so mm. if, if we start with your time in india mm. um the first thing i'm interested to know is wh why what made you decide to go to india in the first place and, and when and when was um, this gosh i think i first went when i was 23 and it was a kind of synchronistic happening i i didn't actually want to go anywhere when i was younger I had dogs. I was quite happy living at home, but I used to care for a young girl, young child with a, a degenerative disease. And I would take her down to a, a hospice um, once a month, once every six weeks. And the driver, the um, escort that would take us down there, he was always encouraging me. He was going, oh, before you, you know, have kids or start a family, you should travel, you should get out there, you should see the world. And he had friends in Manali, um, which is Northern India. And so there came a point where I was going to go to Calgary with a friend to visit Canada. And then he ran off to a road protest site. And so I was all geared up to go. I got some money from the redundancy money when I left working in the school after the little girl passed away. And so I was ready to go. I had my passport. I had some money. And then suddenly a big space appeared. And I'd always been really inspired by the shamanic traditions of South America and the Eastern traditions of um, India and Nepal. And so it was, ooh, which way? But that had like a, a safety net to go and visit this guy's friends and go and stay with them. So that was what initially made me choose India, was just having a safety net that I could go there and there would be somebody. So I went to India and I ended up only visiting these friends of, um, of my associate back here. And it was all a bit weird. But by the time I got there and by the time I landed and the when you travel and there are no restrictions on anything, you've got no routines to hold you. You've got nothing to hold you into anything. So the, the opportunity for synchronicities and flow is just beautiful. And so it, it started immediately and I landed. I met a friend to travel with. And um, yeah, so I did go up to northern India. I visited my friends briefly, but then I kind of. I spent the first, I'd say the first two months of that trip, just kind of floating around, not really knowing where to go, what to do. Um, you know, I kind of went up north, down south, over to the east, over to the west. I've, I have to say I've never actually been to Goa and I've never made it to Agra. So the whole sort of like 12 years that I was going, I mean, I, I kind of traveled all over the place. And it wasn't until I ended up in an ashram down in South India, down near Kerala, that I sort of landed. And I started to meet people that I really felt a beautiful connection with. And um, then I found out about some teachings that were happening up in northern India with the Dalai Lama. Um, and suddenly I started to be pulled. Um, so then I went up to northern India and I ended my trip. I think the first time I only went for three months. 
But I ended my trip um, with some 10 days of teachings with the Dalai Lama and then uh, 20 days of a Vipassana retreat in the Thai temple with uh, some, uh, an English uh, Dharma teacher that had trained and spent time in the forest tradition, the Thai forest tradition with Ajahn Chah. And that just grounded me. It was like, I've landed, I found what, I found what I'm looking for. And then I, I ran out of money, I had to come home, but I was, I was, I was hooked. It was like, okay, this is, this is what I want to be doing. This is what I've been looking for. So it's just like the last month of my three month trip that, yeah. That um, yeah, I uh, have been to Manali, um, mm. where you, you first went. It's absolutely beautiful place. Mm. Um, and seen the Dalai Lama teaching at McLeod Ganj, Dharamsala and, um, mm. Yeah, and I—I I mean, I, I, like you, I—I I got the bug of in, India. I just fell in love with it. I've been three times, um, mm. not anywhere near as long as you. Um, and um, I think it's an amazing place. So, I've also done one of these Vipassana retreats too. Uh, I only did a ten-day one, and I have to confess, mm. for me, most of it was dealing with pain—the pain of right. sitting. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, at the time, that time, I was meditating, I'd meditated for an hour a day for mm. years. Mm. That time, so I could sit really comfortably for an hour, an no hour, problem. Yeah. But I never yeah. really pushed it beyond that. And then suddenly going for 10 hours a day, 10 days. Mm. I said that was a Goenka retreat. It was a Goenka one. Yeah. So a little yeah. bit, a little bit different. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, I think the ones I, yeah, they had walking and sitting and walking and sitting and standing. And you're allowed to do yoga. You're allowed to do your washing. It was a bit more autonomous and a bit more kind of like giving you the space to follow what you needed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Now that is what I would have preferred to have gone on. <laughs> Me too. Me too. So I had to I, say I had I did a Goenka retreat many years later, and it was for me it didn't work. I just really yeah I rebelled. My um. Yeah, I just didn't get on with the going on. I loved his teachings. The teachings were phenomenal. The videos in the evenings that he had recorded were absolutely exquisite. But the actual setting, the holding, yeah, it really didn't. And, and once I had to do a kind of a CV of what what Vipassana I'd done, and I realised I had actually I actually left that one out. I'd completely forgotten. Like I deleted it from my memory that I'd mm. even done that one. So yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I think that you you need to get up and be able to do yoga and walking and exercise yeah. in between all of the mm. sitting because, it, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so then you, you've come home. Mm. And what happens next? Well, I was already living off grid at the time. I was sort of like very simple living. I was, um, where was I living at that point? I think I was living at the end of a friend's garden in Somerset in Froome and I would come back rebuild my bender and then I was doing living care work by this point I started because it was a bit more flexible so I came back I worked well, I have to describe what a bender is for people a bender a bender is a very very simple dwelling that's very easy to build and very cheap so when you're a young skint hippie with very little resources and you want to keep all your resources possible to go to India 
Um, it's basically where you, you cut hazel poles and you, I would make a floor out of pallets and then carpet the floor, bend the poles over the shape that I'd created. I'd usually do an L-shaped one so I could have my bed in a little kind of pod and then cover it with blankets and throws, make it very beautiful, um, get a wood burner in there, a little gas cooker and um, cover it with a great big marquee canvas at the time when you could buy those for very little and so I would uh, be living in that whilst going away and working, I'd to and fro. So I'd kind of work for a couple of weeks, have a couple of weeks off. Um, but as I got more into going back to India and wanting to really keep my time, like as much time as I could, I would just binge work. So <laughs> I would come back and I would do kind of like two months solid or three months solid and just really, you know, save every penny I earned so I could just go back and carry on with what I was doing. And it was almost like, it was really strange that it was like the time in India was my real life. And I would go back home, I would work, I would socialize a little bit, catch up with friends. But then whenever I went back to India, it was almost like when you're in a book and you pick the book back up and you're back in that book again. It was, it was kind of like, yeah, it was very strange. It was almost like there was my really real life that was there. And then there was my sort of samsaric mundane one that I had to come back and do. Um, so yeah, so I would, I would live very simply. And I was, like I said, I never, I have to say, I've never entered the rat race properly. I've never owned a television. I've never owned a fridge. I've never, um, I paid rent. I did rent a flat for one or two months when I was younger, but I found it so consuming, like what I had to do to pay for this box that I didn't really want to be in anyway, was just so crazy to me. I, I simply couldn't do it. All I ever wanted was just the corner of a field, somewhere green, somewhere natural, somewhere close to the earth that I could just live very simply um, and live my life from there. So I was already kind of doing the off-grid thing simply because I just I didn't like being in a box. I didn't enjoy and the, the, the craziness of having to pay so much money for the displeasure. Yeah, yeah. So a bit like that. And then, so, so then you, you, you're living in your bender, um, working, and then sort of when's the next trip back to India? Yeah, basically as soon as I had kind of enough money to keep me going for as long as possible. And I would sort of come back for the summer. I would come back late spring, work through till early autumn, and then go back again. And, um, and it was kind of strange. I remember at the time that I, I perceived everything, all financial transaction was how long could I live in India on this for? You know, everything I did, like, yeah, it was just funny. Everything translated into how long I could be in India on this for. And so it was just, um, whereas some people would want to buy nice shoes or they'd be saving up for a car or they'd be putting a down payment on a house. For me, it was just how long, you know, how long would this keep me in India? I think I used to, and again, in India, I would live quite simply and quite frugally and often in um, simple guest houses and monasteries and retreat places. So, you know, it was just get me back out there. And it was like a, it was a need. It wasn't just a, oh, I, I just want to go back and bum around in India. It was just like such a strong calling that, yeah, I couldn't not do it. And coming back, I would sometimes really struggle coming back. It would be I'd arrive back into Heathrow um, and it would just be like a cloud would descend, just the heaviness of the UK, the grey faces of the people I would see. Um, I found it, I, I would get, um, uh, yeah, I would, go, I would go out to India and it would be like going home. 
and I would come back to the UK and it would just be like, oh, God, really? Yeah, so quite, yeah. And what were you, uh, well, actually, one thing I remember about coming back from India to England was how green England is. Mm, uh, just looking mm. around you, all the green trees. Yes, <laughs> yes, was... that's true. Actually, yeah, because India is very orange and yellow. Mm. And yeah. it's very, and unfortunately, since plastics arrived, very messy, yeah. um, you know, a lot of litter. So I, I must admit, I did get a deep appreciation for the tidiness of, of, of this, this country and the greenness. You know, the green is always, that was the one thing that would, and again, that's probably why I needed to live off grid, because the greyness of, of built up areas really didn't appeal. But if I could surround myself with nature and trees and, um, yeah the vitality of life that would keep me going whilst i was here yeah yeah and i was basically in summer for 12 years you know <laughs> i kind of that was great yeah yeah mm, i forgot about that um so when you were going back to india you I, I know that you got into yoga and meditation and um tibetan buddhism and those kind of things mm, mm, mm. Could, could you sort of talk a bit how Let's let's say let's take yoga to, to mm, start with. Mm -mm. When when did you get into that? Um, I started practicing yoga when I was about nineteen and meditation as well. I'd been into more indigenous cultures before then. Um, I remember reading all of the Carlos Castaneda books and a lot of shamanic work before then. But then when I was nineteen, I had a kind of awakening Kundalini thing, and I didn't know what the hell happened to me. I really didn't know what it was. Um, so it was in the Eastern traditions that I began to find correlations to what I had experienced. And so a lot of, I think a lot of my going to India was also seeking, trying to find somebody that could help me understand what happened and what it meant and what, what was I meant to do with it and how was I supposed to help it unfold. And, and it was all also interesting that I was pulled to two lineages. Usually people are either into one thing or another. But for me, I was drawn to the path of yoga, largely through the Satchinandra, the Shivananda tradition, and which is a very conservative, it's a very well-held uh, tradition that's still alive, and the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, so which is much more shamanic. And it was almost like every step of my path, it would be one step on the um, yoga tradition and then one step on the Tibetan tradition. And to the irony that I think when I was... I think after three years four years of going back because I was yeah it's three years I was 26 when I finally got a clear answer as to what had happened to me and it was from both traditions within a week so I had been like seven years like what what was it what happened what you know and then within like no it was within one month I got the answer from uh the yoga tradition in a book from my um from my guru that I just found and connected with and then also from the some dalai lama teachings again in bodhgaya uh, that i was attending 10 days of teachings and during those teachings the dalai lama also described um this process and this happening that happened and so it was really strange the way both both paths for me complemented each other very beautifully yeah and supported my own my own growth and my own um development but there did come a point where I had to make a choice because in the Tibetan tradition, my Tibetan guru didn't mind me when I um, came to, back to England to live in an ashram. 
I remember asking um, Holiness, you know, do you mind, is it okay for me to live in an ashram? Because many people in our sangha would be like, oh, you can't do this, you can't mix things. You can't. And he just kind of looked at me and he said, oh, yeah, for you, no problem, it's okay. Um, but then, so I, I also met my two main teachers and gurus within the same year. And one led me to the other. Um, one of them was uh, Swami Naranjananand from the uh, Satyananda tradition in Mungir, in Bihar. And meeting him was, I just spent three months doing a, a, a Ngandro practice, which is preliminary practices for highest yoga tantra. All monks and nuns have to do these hundred thousands. 100,000 prostrations, 100,000 mandalas, 100,000 vajrasattva, and 100,000 guru rinpoche, um, uh, guru yogas. And so I just completed the first 100,000, which was taking refuge in guru. So I'd spent like seven, eight hours a day, every day, prostrating myself to this image of, of, of guru. And as I'm doing it, being a Westerner, I'm kind of like, what am I doing? Who is this? What is this? You know, and, and what it turned out to be for me, because it's all about the way I see it is it's, it's all about relationship. We have to take something that's essentially formless and bring it into forms that we can make relationship with. So there can be a, a kind of an understanding because ultimately there's, it's all non-dual, but the existence that we have is a very relative dualistic um, experience. So it's giving us tools to work within this kind of like um, polarity that we find ourselves and so after literally the, I and I'd wanted to go to this ashram in India for two years two years I'd been trying to go and visit this ashram and no success not allowed in no we don't have any space and so I'm doing these prostrations and I'm getting really close to the end I think I had like 6,000 prostrations left to do and I meet this German guy and I was doing 2,000 a day. Only 6,000. Only 6,000. You're doing 2,000 a day. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And man, my body was hurting. But yeah, it was, it was, it was quite profound. You know, people like altered states. And you can, yeah, there are all different ways you can go about yeah. this. And the, these um, are prostrations completely lying face flat on the ground yes. with your arms outstretched and everything. And yeah. then going back yeah. to a standing position. Yes. And you'd literally, you'd hire a, a prostration board. There would be probably one, 200 monks and nuns all doing the same practice in the same area. Um, and I used to do these practices in Bodhgaya in the temple complex around the Bodhi tree and the temple. And it was basically like being inside a battery and you'd have for three months of the winter, you'd have monks and nuns all coming from all over Northern India to do their practice, to do their nandra practice. But there would just be like hundreds of us just up and down and up and down. And whilst people are circumambulating the inside, circumambulating around us, another chorus circuit around the outside of that. So it was just like being in this big prayer uh, mandala of everyone doing very, so it was so epic. It was such a profound time of my life. When I look back on it, it's, there's not much I can compare it to. Mm -hmm. um, so I was doing this practice, I had about 6,000 left, and I was having chai one evening after sort of finishing for the day, chatting to a German guy, and he was like, oh yeah, I'm just on my way to this Mungir ashram, they have this big like prayer yagya happening uh, for the next two weeks, and I, I was like, well, what's this, you know, and he told me it was an open thing, and anyone can go, and they're having like a whole 10 day uh, yagya, which was like a big prayer mantra celebration thing. 
And I was like, can I come? Can I come with you? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I leave in two days. So I was like, okay, I've got two days to finish 6,000 prostrations. So like 10 days, I mean, 10 hours for the next two days, I was like up really early, all day prostrations, all day the next day prostrations. And then five o'clock the next morning, I'm on a bus with this guy heading to uh, Mungia. And then the following day we, are, we arrive and I walk into the ashram where everyone's registering. And this, this being, this swami, just a swami, you know, he doesn't look particularly much, he's possibly taller and very straight body, very aligned. This guy just come around to the corner and goes into an office. And literally it was like a golden breeze just knocked me up out of my body. And when I fell back down into my into my myself again, I was like, that's him. That's and it was like meeting the being that I just spent the last three months kind of praying to, you know. So it was like, I mean, again, it's almost like manifestation. You focus on something enough and you you bring it into life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I had the next 10 days of the most mind-blowing. Um, I have to say, I felt like I was tripping for 10 days. It was quite profound. The whole ceremony was just like nothing. I'd, and I think from all that practice and from all that um, devotion and generating all this devotion, and I, I was just in such a ripe space to be in that position um, and be in. And that was, so that was meeting my first um, guru. And for the next two months, he was just in me and with me. It was almost like he was just walking alongside me he wasn't obviously in an actual way but it felt like he was just right there with me any question I had he it, it, there was the answer um, and yeah and it was it was quite quite powerful and even when I met him you know like nobody could get near to this guy he always had a crowd of people a crowd of swamis it was impossible to get around to, to meet him and yet every time I needed to like ask him something or I mean it was only twice two or three times he would just be there and there would be no one around him and I would just be able to walk up to him and go oh hi Swamiji um blah 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 you know it was really quite magical um yeah yeah and it was through him that I then met my second teacher as well um I say through him through him internally guiding me because when I met my Tibetan teacher I remember him just kind of in my head saying, well, you've, de- you've dedicated to the Tibetan path, so you, you need a good teacher here. And it was literally on those backgrounds that I accepted um, uh, His Holiness Gyamang Drukpa as my second teacher. So, yeah. But, um, but I then carried on with these, this sort of like dualistic um, pattern of having two gurus. And for holiness, it was no problem. But then when I went back to the ashram, like a second year or third year later, people go, oh, you can't, you can't do this and that. And so I went up to Swami Naranjan and I kind of said, oh, look, you know, I kind of like have two gurus. I've got you and my Tibetan guru, you know, is this okay? And he sort of says, well, you know, this kind of like spiritual polygamy, you know, you should really just choose one. <laughs> and so, yeah. Well, it, then... it's, it's an interesting point. And, and there's been quite a theme of my podcast is... Mm. Um, not having to choose one thing and mm. that and i i think that so there's this saying um well there's a there's a traditional japanese saying of chase mm. two rabbits catch none mm. Mm. but um that's just one way of looking at it 
There, and, and there's the other way of thing people say of digging lots of shallow hole, holes. Yes. No deep ones. Yeah. yeah. But again, that's just one way of looking at it. I think mm. you can you can dig several pretty deep holes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, absolutely. And having some shallow ones is not bad either. Mm. Um, yeah. Holes of dip from depths, and I mm. think people specialize you're always naturally going to specialize in one or two things because you've been mm, born mm. with these innate talents in certain areas. Yes. Everyone is. Yeah. And mm. you're naturally going to go deep in those areas. But you know, the kind of caricature, so I've, I've carried, I've said the caricature of um, the, the cafeteria, cafeteria model of mm. spirituality mm, or, mm. Um, or the, spiritual polygamy as your guru mm. called it um, yeah. but i could you, we could caricature the the other side of that which is only mm. following one path one mm. method mm. and that's kind of ultra conservatism yeah. and an inability a lack of flexibility mm. Um, mm. a kind of brittleness because if that one thing doesn't work mm. You've, all your eggs are in one basket yeah, um, yeah. and life can throw all sorts of different things at you and, and yeah. so I think it's, e you, it's easy to bring to bring out the pros and cons of either mm. of both of these approaches and mm, I, mm. I really think particularly living in, in, a, in a, the, the time we live in we've got all mm. of these spiritual traditions yeah. out there in completely exposed in front of us yeah yeah um and i do think we're in a sort of unique t we've got this unique opportunity to com um, compose a new type of spirituality mm, mm, which mm. so mm. If tibetan it, tibet doesn't have a strong tradition of the use of, of psychedelic mm, uh, mm. because of the geog the geography of tibet yeah. doesn't really um well i think there are there are a few there. things yeah that, there are uh, hidden things yeah. Uh, yeah i know can cannabis grows a lot through a lot of mm -hmm. um sort of, uh, that mm. kind of area of the world but there's a there's a rainforest area up in there called pemaco as well and i think that holds a whole different um area of potential medicines but right, again, it's right. very, I would say it would be very secret teachings that very few um, disciples would be given or need because yeah. essentially the practices they have developed are pretty powerful in themselves. Um, but I get the feeling that there was in the older days, in the Tantrika days, I think there was a lot more secret use for the right people where it was necessary and, and, and useful. Yeah. And there were, also, there were trade routes as well. That, exactly. That and there was a huge, yeah. yes, huge amount of... Um, I think what, between what I mean is is it's mm. it's not front and centre in Tibetan no. Buddhism, whereas in sort of um, South American shamanic traditions, yeah, uh, it very much is front That's and centre. ayahuasca and yeah. The yeah. peyote, mushrooms, those mm. things. So I, I yeah. my personal view is that... Um, you know, Tibetan Buddhism has got a lot to learn from the Amazon, Amazon mm, shamanism, mm. for example, and vice mm. versa. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's yeah. just a little kind of 
footnote on uh, mm. on that. So, uh, and I think no, also yeah. to, to add to that, just like the metaphor you used of digging several holes, for me it felt very much like that awakening dug the hole, and I dug the hole, and it went all the way down, and then I needed help to know like okay so what now I've kind of dug my hole and I've kind of found something it wasn't complete it wasn't the whole picture but both spiritual paths and both teachers had something to share with me and it wasn't verbally because the my yoga um Swami Naranjan he was very much an embodiment of what I knew to be true but the teachings he were giving, he was giving were very relative teachings and very yoga kind of graduated path teachings. But what I perceived and what I experienced as a direct transmission from his being was a complete transmission of the non-dual state. And I realized like through the heart connection we have with these beings, when we have like this open heart channel connection with this, with a being of such awakened magnitude, it's literally like a like when you plug into a, a computer, the information can just get trans you know transmitted from one hard drive to the other, and that for me is what takes place between a guru and a disciple is this direct transmission of of of, of gnostic kind of knowing and beingness and purification and awakening, and what Swami Naranjan did for me was essentially, um, they talk in guru-disciple relationships of bestowing blessings. And those blessings are transmissions of um, wisdom and awakening and understanding. And I remember, so when I was 19, I say I had this awakening, but it wasn't complete. It didn't answer the questions that I'd been seeking. It kind of took me, it gave me a grander understanding and a, and a bigger perception of the whole, of the, the polarity of existence. But it's still, I was essentially looking for, for God and for love, God in the form of love. I was looking for, like Buddha, you know, suffering. How do we end the suffering? Why is there this suffering? And, and all of that sort of like really primal stuff. And my Tibetan teacher was teaching the non-dual. He was teaching the Mahamudra and the Dzogchen. And he was also an embodiment of it, but in a different way. Whereas the, my Swami teacher was teaching the graduated path of yoga. So it was kind of like both being had something to transmit to me. Mm. And when I was 26, because also, I mean, talking about the psychedelics, you know, I, I first um, met medicine plants when I was 14. <laughs> and then they gave me a bit of a telling off because I, I was a bit of a child with it. And I was like, oh, this is kind of fun. It was very, I would always feel sort of like... I was always questing. I was always looking for God and looking for spirit and looking for wisdom. So it was never, I wasn't just like necking magic mushrooms because it was fun. I took them and I touched God and it was powerful, but it was also very fun and it also made me laugh. And um, so they kind of gave me a bit of a telling off after a few occasions and I stepped back for a few years. But then again, the psychedelic path was a huge part of my healing before I started traveling. And um, when I started traveling, it was like, okay, I need to integrate what I've been shown and I need something very down to earth and practical. So my time in India was a very much like, you know, do the work, sit, practice, meditate, you know, receive blessings, receive initiation, purify the crap that's, that's shadowing my heart and stopping me from being able to live from that full space of, of love that I've touched but when I come back, 
it's still clouded it's shrouded in this kind of like cloud of of um what would they call it uh afflictive emotions you know so both of my teachers gave me very different tools for slowly understanding and working through that and Swami Naranjan was the being who gave me the blessings for the second awakening that I had when I was 26 and that was that did answer my questions and that did open the door to my heart and showed me everything and that was that was what he was for that was what his blessing and gift and karmic thing for me was whereas my tibetan teacher was longer it was ongoing there was more he was more of a practical teacher because after swami narandian had said to me you need to choose one teacher i was like well of course it's you so i immediately left the ashram jumped on a bus jumped on a train jumped on another bus i think two days later arrived in Kathmandu. you know hitchhiking my way up to my um to holiness's nunnery and literally as I'm sitting on this like <laughs> sitting on this tractor slowly chugging up the hill to the nunnery and holiness drives past me coming the other way and just in that moment of seeing him it was like I was going up to say look holiness thank you for everything you've done for me you know but I've got to choose one teacher so I'm going to be heading back to the ashram in that moment of seeing him it was like no it's you it was kind of like falling in love it was like okay wow and so in that moment I knew that he was the teacher that I was going to be staying with um and so from you know the next 10 years I then spent going deeper and deeper into the Tibetan Buddhist path um yeah I think it it, it was a you were, you were lucky to encounter the the gradual path and the sudden path at the same mm-hmm. time because mm-hmm. this is another one of those things that i my personal opinion is that most people it's most people should expose mm. themselves to direct sudden uh teachings like Sogchen, yeah yeah mahamudra mm. um, mm. rinzai zen those kind yeah. of things Advaita, yeah yeah and um and also the gradual path like yeah. the soto yeah. zen or mm. some of the um uh, well there's tons of them but yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm not going to list them all but um because they those two in this kind of binary way scaffold each mm. other to always be moving forwards yeah yeah and uh, you know the yeah. sort of critique of people that just do the sudden stuff mm. is that they mm. get a flash of insight and mm. they're like oh that will do and then mm. you spend yeah. their time sitting around um drinking tea and playing video yeah. games and yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. reading trashy yeah. magazines or something and, <laughs> yeah. then, and thinking that that's it or oh, yeah, everything's done which yeah, that's a kind of, they, they're, they're right but they're also a, they kind of mm. created a perverted version of that mm. Mm. and then on the mm. other side you've got people that are always just on the gradual path yeah. and they're kind of uh, grinding yeah. after yeah. an ever receding yeah. horizon that they never reach well, they'll never purify all that karma that they've yeah. apparently got and all the afflictive emotions that we get. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think so you I, get this psychedelics as well, isn't it? You get the psychedelic, you get the insight and you get the profound, like, wow, okay. But 
without the integration, without the tools to really integrate it. And and even even now, there's no real, there's no guidebook, really. I mean, we're in a paradigm where it's all up in the air right now. Even what is, you know, karma, uh, reincarnation. And I, even for myself as a youngster, I used to be like, oh, yeah, karma, I can, I get that. And reincarnation, oh, yeah. But now the more I learn, the less sure about anything I become. And the only thing I get left with is that um, I need to choose. I need to choose what I want my life in this, what my life to be about. Do I choose love or do I choose like just indulgence? Do I choose service or do I choose hedonism? And in each moment, maybe sometimes I choose hedonism because I'm human. We all like to have fun. But it's kind of like in each moment we have choices. And then, I mean, and then in... But the irony and the paradox of that is that in the non-dual, in the Advaita, in the Zogshan, there's no choice. There's nowhere to go. There's nothing to achieve. There's nothing to gain. Um, so, you know, it's just suffused in paradox. And we, we live in this kind of like apparently binary world that's also a, a whole. And, and it, you know, it's like for the last seven years since coming home and settling and becoming a mother, I've been living on one piece of land in, in Wales and I've really got into the cyclical and I found it really ironic that I spend 12 years um, largely in Buddhism which is to end cyclical existence to free ourselves from cyclical existence and the last five years I've been teaching teaching and sharing and doing workshops on how to live within the cyclical and how to honor the cyclical nature of existence and how to ride it without getting bashed about because we do relatively live in a cyclical world that, that cycles from birth to death from birth to death and in our own lifetime we have several like cycles of being reborn as a new person and then and then that dies and we shed that and we get reborn again you know and it's um yeah the the paradox for me and, and also like okay i've had like two three awakenings and yet still as a parent i'm just stuck sometimes as to like wow what, what do I do right now with sugar and technology and boundaries and all this relative stuff that it's like well ultimately it's all fine and I could just like be I could just go oh, it's all fine I don't need to do anything I can just let my children be free but we all know where that goes you know it's 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 life is kind of a never-ending journey of learning yeah. um you know and yeah and and an integration an experiment an experimentation um so yeah yeah a bit of a deviation there but no it's good so you you've segued us kind of naturally into <clears throat> move back into uh, mm. um you know having been a nomad going around mm. into this kind of um living in one place yes. in, in wales mm. um and living completely off grid and I, I um, visited you recently and it really is in the middle of nowhere. And yeah. uh, the, the track to get to your house. It's quite uh, shocking, isn't it? Yeah. I think when you, when seeing you nip up and down it in your car. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's just second nature to you and you know all the little bits to go. On. But for me, it was, mm -hmm. it was like driving down a dried riverbed or something. Mm um very yes. very steep bare rock um and uh yeah it was uh, and it's, it's in a very very remote location mm. um, 
and you can't hear you can't hear cars road roads mm. trains it's a yeah. very feels it really does feel like just away from civilization mm. in mm. the kind of hills yeah. um, so that's you've come that's where where you've where you've been living mm. completely off grid and mm. your house looks like something out of the shire in lord of the rings yes <laughs> um, perhaps we could start there with um the building you actually live in because that's mm. what when, when, the first thing people think of when they're because mm. I, I meet a lot of people who are wanting to live off grid mm. um, they might have met a lot of people who have sold all their stuff up they've moved mm. into a van they're traveling around looking for mm. the place where they can live uh, mm. and that's finding somewhere to live is probably not going to be part of this conversation because that's a whole nother mm. yes. people can look on the internet <laughs> yeah. about where do you find the place yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah. but it's it, a lot of people are looking for it mm. so mm. let's say you found your place wherever mm. that is um maybe in uh at portugal a lot of people end up in portugal those kind of places that yeah. uh, wales is sometimes a possibility mm. um then the next thing is, is what are you going to live in? Yeah. yeah. So perhaps you mm. could describe that mm. for you. <clears throat> well, I mean, it's interesting because I don't, although it's a different place, I see my whole off-grid life as a slow, gradual progression again. Um, you know, I started in vendors and then I built myself a yurt and I ended up going from like living in a little tiny bender in a quarry completely illegally to living in a friend's garden to living on a beautiful ancient woodland in an organic farm and slowly slowly it just kind of opened up and I think there's got to be a real again this is about decision and choice there's got to be a real clear choice that this is how I'm living and there's no two ways about it for me and a lot of people they want to buy a piece of land build a roundhouse and they want it all to be perfect straight away and I don't think in this country where logistically that's really difficult, legally and logistically, it's very difficult. It's like you're more likely to just buy a small bit of land and build a bender or build, uh, get a caravan on there and just be on there. You know, it's so, <clears throat> it's, it's just challenging. So for me, it was a part of my gradual progression. And I'd gone from bender to, to um, nice bender and then a little roundhousey thing in my friend's land to a, a yurt that I built on in a woodland and then to a roundhouse um, in this piece of land in Wales. Now I've never owned a piece of land. I've never owned any of the land I've lived on and I feel kind of at peace with that. I almost feel it's more true. I don't really believe we can own land but we can be guardians of it and I mean Again, it happened by synchronicity. It happened by happenstance. I just was very fortunate that things went the way they did. And, um, you know, we could have all sorts of philosophical conversations about how that's so and how that happens. But um, it was just what I called into my life. It was how I wanted to live. And there was no two ways about it. And I'd always said this area where I live, there's quite a few people there and quite a few children. And I'd, it was the only place that I would see children playing freely in the same way that I did when I grew up. 
And I always said, you know, if I end up a single mother, I'm going to go and live there. And I didn't end up a single mother. I ended up meeting somebody that was already living there. Um, and that was kind of how I ended up um, just going straight onto a beautiful piece of land um, and building a roundhouse without any obstacles or problems, just through the, the fortune and luck of it, really. So, and, and I do, I must admit, I do feel all those years of practice, all those years in India, as I'm getting older, I'm realizing just how much shifted, how much I think I shifted inside me, how many like ancient, yeah. I mean, I don't want to go into that because it's a very old fashioned way of thinking about things. And a lot of people are like, oh, that's rubbish. That's just bullshit. But in my own experience, um, when I started traveling, I had a lot of darkness inside of me. I was quite unhappy in many ways. And over the years, the purifications, the healings, the transformations that took place cleared stuff in me and made the life that I lead now possible, including landing where I did, including meeting the person that I had children with, including all of it. And at five months pregnant, I moved up to Wales and we had three months to build the roundhouse. So there was already a structure there that had been deserted for 10 years. And we kind of rebuilt that. And we had the due date as the moving in date. Um, so we spent three months rebuilding it. It cost us maybe four grand in materials to do it. And um, we moved in the day before my due date. And then the first morning that we woke up, well, I woke up at 3.30 in the morning in labor. And so I know exactly how long we've been living there because it's my daughter's birthday. <laughs> wow. So yeah, yeah. So what, the first whole day in the, in the roundhouse was spent in labor yeah so you've been there 10 years is that 12 years now 12, 12. years yeah. yeah yeah and it's and it's funny because i seem to have this 12 year cycle thing so i've just had i had 12 years in india and then i've come and i've had 12 years off grid being there and i'm still going to continue being there but i can feel shifts again you know as my kids are getting older and as life's starting to open out again um yeah i can feel another 12 year cycle starting but it will still probably be off grid. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, what what do you have as a power source in your house? So we've got um, solar panels basically, and we've got I mean we've got a workshop, and we've got we've got sort of three little spaces that all have solar panels on the roof, and all have their own little electrical setup. Um, we don't have internet. I've only got a rubbish phone signal in the house, so I have to go up into the workshop for internet. We don't actually have running water. I know many other people that live near us, they have piped water from the streams. And we could have, but we've got a little stream that runs through the piece of land we live on. And I think having that just literally 10 yards from the door takes the edge off needing to have running water. So we've got a filter for drinking water. We get our water from a borehole, but there are quite a few springs also dotted around. Um, but the solar, you know, solar, a lot of people in houses have solar on their houses. And there's this kind of idea that, you know, oh, yeah, it's fine. We can do everything we could do before. But living purely off grid and having solar, it will run the lights. It will charge a phone. And you, I can only charge a laptop if the sun's shining because it draws so much out all at once that if we're in the middle of the winter, it would screw the batteries. 
Um, and in the winter, often, you know, the electricity runs out at about eight o'clock or seven o'clock and we have to send it down from the workshop. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting for my kids to grow up because it's not just a constant supply of electricity. There's not just a constant flow of, of electricity. It's like, oh, quick, quick, turn the lights off. We're about to run out of battery or unplug your DVD player. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of, and I'm not worried about that being like a lack mentality. For me, it's, it's like, just gives us an idea that we live on a finite planet that has finite resources. And there's not just an unending stream of electricity and everything, you know, it's, for me, it's a really valuable lesson to realize that things do run out, you know, and that's something that our culture really doesn't have in its forebrain. Um, and it would possibly be really helpful if it did. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm. and um you grow your some food and you've got chickens and, and that's <clears throat> mm. Mm. yeah 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 i mean um we grow we've had a bit of a troubled time this time because we've been getting in the polytunnel's been getting invaded we've got a, a large polytunnel a garden area but we are we're kind of like in a crack going down into a valley so the sun leaves the garden by four o'clock in the afternoon so I've only just successfully grown squash up in the field where I'm building a little glorified vendor because it gets more sunlight. Um, but we would often get like 80% of our own garlic and onions for the year. We would have um, greens like kale and cabbage throughout the year. Um, you know, obviously everything seasonal, runner beans for three months, broad beans for a month or two, um, tomatoes all through the summer salad from kind of spring to autumn or into the winter if we're if we're clever um so but it gives you it also gives you a very good idea of if you were actually growing the food that you wanted to eat you we would have to work a lot harder you know yeah. the amount of food i'd say we get maybe 20 percent of our vegetable supplement really we still go out and this is the interesting thing about living off grid is it's impossible to really do it without whilst there's still the world out there it's it's kind of very disjointed in a way because there's not the need there's not the need to spend all day gardening and growing and and everything we have to get our wood we have to get our water and that in itself takes you know that takes time so it's it's a it's definitely a slower pace of life um and obviously we grow a certain amount of the food that we eat but um it's kind of an interesting experience living, wanting to live a certain way, but it literally being impossible because of the culture and the world around us in a way. And also enjoying that and not being able to give it up and let it go because it is there. So, you know, I think I was reading a, a First Nations story and it was talking about the sacred hoop. And I really could feel how the sacred hoop of the First Nations people, it was it was the way they lived, but it was the way they lived in relation to the land and the wildness and the wilderness around them. And once that wilderness was taken away, once the land was taken away and they couldn't freely hunt and freely travel and do all the things they needed to do, that was part of the breaking of the sacred hoop because they weren't able, the, the, the men's nation weren't able to go out and fulfill their purpose and hunt and bring back the food because they most likely got killed or caught in skirmishes or distracted with alcohol sellers and drunk or you know it really broke down and so it's kind of like the sacred hoop of life is still broken 
because we haven't got the wilderness around us to really live off-grid truly. If we wanted to be self-sufficient, um, we would be able to do it maybe in a farming way, um, but it would take a lot more land and a lot more work, um, which, you know, I'd be up for, but it's, uh, yeah, it's been a long, long, long time since in this land we've been self-sufficient. And I think the systems that need to be in place for that to be so they could come back pretty quickly, but we would probably have one or two very hungry winters before that happened. Yeah. Yeah. I think not a lot of people actually want to be farmers. No. No. That's the reality of growing your own food is it's Mm, mm. pretty much all consuming activity. I mean, I've I've done a a bit of it um, Mm. at my own home. I used to do more of it. you know, uh, kind of 15 years ago and mm. I just decided after doing a lot of it I thought oh, I don't know it's, I mean I like this I like eating food and mm. like growing it and the understanding mm. that comes with it but I'd gone too far into becoming a you know a cultured modern human and yeah. I yeah, got yeah. a taste for it and I didn't want to go I didn't want to basically be a, a, a you know, farmer, not yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, being absolutely. a farmer, but it's like yeah. only only a certain proportion of people actually want to be farmers and other people yeah. want to be musicians and mm-hmm. absolutely, um, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, mechanics and, and all these other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, myself included, I don't think I want to be a farmer particularly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's what yeah. So what would you say um I mean you you know you've already talked about some of the the challenges of living off grid and this thing of mm. the broken circle, the broken hoop mm. Definitely mm. Is, is, is one of them. Mm. Um, what about, you know, what are some of the other big ones that you, you face in your life that other people don't have? Mm. Um, I think, I think I am very blessed. I feel very blessed that myself and my family and, other other folks around that we actually have this connection have the land connection you know we we live very close to the earth i i have a direct experience of the um the the communication that can take place between the land and the people um we have sweat lodge every full moon every new moon so there's like we have the cyclical rhythms and i think part of i guess part of the sacred hoop as well is the fact that it's cyclical it's round and living on the land, you know, I know when the moon's full and I know when the moon's new just by going outside. And I think the effect on my physical body, I went to stay in London uh, well, four or five years ago. And it was very foggy at that time. And so the sky was just orange. And we were staying in a bedroom that had quite thin curtains. So the room was orange. And I spent three days in orange at night. Mm. and I kind of I I was aware that I didn't like it but it wasn't until I got home and I stepped outdoors at night to go for a pee or something and the darkness it was like every cell in my body just went oh god thank you um and I so I think like the just the very physical benefits of being aware of the rhythms of life of 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 having that darkness and that quietness um when i go and stay in a house you know houses are so noisy <laughs> i was yeah, i always yeah. find it quite shocking the you know the kind of the fridges and the vibrations and the 
and the 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 noises um so i just i think just on the biology just living close to the land the benefits of having that physical um grounding you know i go out in the garden barefoot i go and i wash in the stream um you know if i'm uh yeah so so the beauty of of having all of that really helps keep me grounded keeps me vital keeps me healthy um very easily without actually having to do much i don't go to the gym i just go i walk up and down the valley and go and visit a friend um the, you know i go chop some wood i saw some wood so all of the things that people have kind of outsourced to a gym or to a you know it, it happens in life yeah so yeah yeah no, it's interesting that you you take what people do nowadays is they take they isolate certain parts of a natural human's life mm, uh, mm. and then make them into a thing like going to the gym mm, or mm. going to a restaurant mm. uh, um, yeah that uh, learning learning skills the kind of you you have to learn lots of skills when you mm, live off mm. grid because people aren't there to always help you and Mm. I, I'm, I mean, I imagine it's quite difficult to get to you at certain times of the year, for example. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we do. Um, if it snows, we do get frozen in sometimes. Yeah. And you need yeah. snow socks or chains to get in and out, which, um, yeah, it's OK because we, we do have that. But for other people, it can be shocking and a bit of a bit of a problem. Yeah. But um, yeah. but again, I mean, it is it is a lifestyle choice. It's not easy. And many, many people would not choose to do it. But I think a lot of people would be surprised at, like a lot of people that, that don't do it are aware of the fears and are aware of the, the losses. Like, oh, but I wouldn't have an easy phone signal. I wouldn't be able to stream Netflix. I wouldn't be able to have hot running water. But they're not aware of the beauty and the amazing other side of it. Um, I, I had a friend once, she was very much into her town and city life. She loved it. She loved makeup. She loved high heels. She loved dressing up and going out, you know, and all. And yet she would come and visit me when I lived in my bender. Um, and she just loved it. She loved it. And she was like, oh, I could so enjoy doing this, actually, if I, you know, and I think people don't realize how quickly they would actually slip back into it, to living simply because it is our nature it is what we've done for hundreds of thousands of years like you know not having a tv but sitting around a fire with people and chatting and playing music and, and all the things that we've done for millennia we still do and my most precious memories my most joyful memories like when i'm on my deathbed and my mind's flicking through all the beautiful moments in my life most of them will be sat around an open fire and will involve music and singing and smiling faces and, and love shared with other people. Um, and for me, fortunately, that happens quite often. You know, we celebrate the cross-coursely festivals and the equinoxes and the solstices. We have like a clock where every six weeks we one of these celebrations happen and we, we come together and we, we join around the fire and we stay up all night singing. And, and again, it's like this rhythm, this kind of connection with the cycles of life and the cycles of earth and the cycles of being in a physical body um, and really attuning. So for me, I think the whole lifestyle really roots into that um, and, it, and it grounds into that. So it doesn't matter where I go from that. You know, I can go and visit the city. I can go and watch, you know, I can do all of those things because I'm rooted and grounded in that cyclical um yeah that spiral cyclical nature that keeps me kind of um yeah keeps me connected keeps me connected to the land yeah and the land 
connects back to me as well. It's a, it's a two-way thing. It's not just me. There is a, a reciprocity that happens as well. Yeah, mm. yeah I think um, living with within cycles that are natural versus living in the in the modern calendar world with mm. um, all your, the, the diaries and uh, uh, all the synchronized timing and and. Mm -hmm. and that it works this was that you could call it the machine world mm, yeah. mm. railways cars offices yeah, punching yeah. your time clock in at work and yeah, all yeah. of that's a completely different type of rhythm to mm, the types of rhythm you're describing yeah, um, yeah. and i think a lot of people that end up living off grids have found it very difficult being part of the machine world yeah, yeah and even yeah. living uh, a modern mm. house is actually a machine Mm, mm. Is you living in a machine with all the electric wiring and um, mm. dishwashers and clocks and and and, and everything, computers? Mm. It's all just humming away. Yeah, um, yeah. And there there is this kind of thing, but I yeah. Um, how what, what are you doing for your battery? Let's have a look. Let's have a look. Yeah, we're all right. We've probably got about another twenty minutes, half an hour or so. I okay. Reckon. Yeah, well, <laughs> the downside of being outside. <laughs> yeah, can't, yeah. Can't plug it into my tree here. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, the, the okay. So there's one other area where mm. you and I share and share share an interest in psychedelics, yeah. um, and you, as far as I know, uh, remember talking to you, you've actually like a lot of the things in your life. You thought. Um, you really went for it and said, well, I want to, ex well, you went for it with all, all of these uh, different psychedelics <laughs> and things, but also yeah. there's this chap called John Lilly, who um, a lot of people that are psychedelics enthusiasts would have heard of. And mm -hmm. rather than just read some of his books, like most people did, you said, I want to actually meet this guy. Uh, mm -hmm. And you did, mm -hmm. and you went and, um, as far as I can remember, you dropped some acid with him. Uh, <laughs> well, I dropped some acid in his tank. Oh, okay. Yeah. I ended up, yeah, in no, I looked tank. after him for a month. Yeah. So perhaps it, that yeah. is an interesting story to hear. Um, because, mm. uh, and well, you could just say a little bit about who John Lilly is for, for those who don't know. Because he's, yeah. he's, people that know who he is, he's quite a famous uh, and important mm -hmm. guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So John, I mean, essentially, he invented the flotation tank. That's what a lot of people know him for. I think back when he was a young man and in university, there were there was the idea that if consciousness had no stimulus, the brain would just go to sleep. And so he was like, no, 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 this is rubbish. This isn't true. So he created the flotation tank, uh, the sensory deprivation tank to show that the mind continued on. And he then he was doing work with dolphins. He wanted to create a translation system between dolphin and human which never quite happened, unfortunately. Um, but he ended up basically doing huge amounts of psychedelics. And he's possibly one of the only people that did possibly way too much ketamine without actually dying, because most of the other people that ended up going down that path, even in an experimental aware route with the intramuscular ketamine um, use, did all end up kind of well the main ones within that scene a lot of them did die and John nearly died twice but he was um, luckily found and revived 
So again, he had some good guides helping him in his world of synchronicity. He also coined, he was one of the first ones to talk about synchronicities and coincidence. And um, he termed a whole like galactic, intergalactic, um, local coincidence control office. He kind of like had this whole thing, but I, again, when I was reading Carlos Castaneda, I was also reading a lot of John's work. And it's interesting to read his stuff because he started talking about AI long before AI was even a conception. He, on his Ketman trips, he, in, he was told about the solid state entity, which um, when I, I read his last, he's got an autobiography that he wrote back in the 80s. And I had read that and I, I was like, wow, I want to go and meet this guy. And so I had a, a, an opportunity to go and work in Hawaii. I did one trip where I went around the world and I chose Hawaii as one of the stop off points in the hope that I could go and meet him. And then when the job that I had lined up fell through, I was about to cancel it. But um, again, my intuition was like, no, 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 just have a look on John's website, see if there's an, uh, something that you could go and help him with. And I found a phone number and phoned the number. And by the end of the phone call, I was basically, I had arranged to go and live with him and look after him for a month because he had had a stroke and he was bedridden and they were struggling to like find care for him. So so for that leg of my journey, I went and lived with him for a month and was his carer. And I just basically, I would hang out with him for a day and then I would have a day off. And, and it was, he was a profoundly beautiful being. The energy around him was the same as I felt in the Ramana Maharishi ashram when I went there in India. It was just a deep sense of peace. And it was like when you're in the presence of a, a master or a guru, quite often questions just drop away. Any question that sort of comes to, to, your, to your, your mind or your tongue, it just instantly seems so trivial because you're in the presence of something uh, bigger. And he had a very, even though he still smoked cigarettes, I mean, the main thing he would say would be like, can you get me a cigarette? <laughs> no, just get him a cigarette and he'd smoke. And I just sit there with him just in a sort of a state of extraordinary peace. Um, but he had a flotation tank in his uh, garage. So I did a couple of sessions uh, straight, but I would usually, when I did go traveling, I would always just have a little bit of something stashed away in one of my bags somewhere in case, um, in case the need ar arose for me to go deeper. I kind of like, I was like, Hey John, I'm going to do some acid in your tank tonight. And he was just like, great. Um, and it was one of the, one of the profound, um, experiences of my life that had a very, lasting effect on me and again like you're saying with plant medicine and with psychedelics um you know there are those experiences for me you know I used to get really annoyed like people would just go oh yeah we're going to do some mushrooms and and it was just about like visuals or fun for me it was like if there's no insight if there's nothing learned and there's nothing that I can integrate into my day-to-day -day life then what's the point um and so for me it was always like I wouldn't just trip all the time. I would do a journey when I needed support, when I needed help. But on this occasion, it was like, I'm here, there's a flotation tank and it feels like the right thing to do. And so, um, yeah, I did a, I've got a video on my YouTube channel about that particular journey. So I won't um, bore you with that, but um, it was a very beautiful and profound journey. And again, I think being in John's aura, being in his mandala, 
was a part of that as well. But I did have a crush on his manager. So I had to just basically spend about two hours of the trip just waiting for all of this nonsense that just kept bubbling through my <laughs> mental, emotional body to just sort of subside. Um, which, you know, and again, thanks to the Buddhist training for me, like psychedelics without any Buddhism is, is kind of just like the blind leading the blind. But once you take like a tradition um, like Buddhism that gives you real insight into the nature of self and then you take that into your psychedelic journeys, it's, it's like it's powerful, you know, because you're not getting lost in, in stories. You're not getting lost in blah, blah. You're not getting distracted with, with um, you know, ideas of grandeur and, and different kind of, yeah. So all of that training would really help me as in, as an older person when I would on the odd occasion do a journey. Um, yeah. Yeah. Having, having those trainings were profound. Mm. Yeah. So I've um, like you, I started taking psychedelics when I was 14 um, and that was a long time ago. That's <laughs> over 30 years now. Um, yeah, yeah. And um I, I got into Buddhism and, and stuff like that when I was about, um, when I was 18. Mm. So I've, they've always been working in tandem with each other. Yeah. Um, mm. But actually recently, I've got to say, I have decided to have a break, uh, quite a long break from all psychedelics. Because mm. um, mm. I've had a... a, a well, so I had a uh, this last year I had a sort mm. of synchronicities. Mm. I had weight uh, synchronicity overload. Mm. Where yeah. I had um, I had a temporal lobe seizure, which is basically yeah. thirty minutes of nonstop déjà vu um, wow. and unending bizarre memories. Um, mm. And also in the last year, I've had um, what I describe as a sort of cannabis-induced mini psychosis that lasted for three hours or something. Wow! Um, yeah. Which was so I've been smoking cannabis every night for five years mm. uh, up to, at the top to this point when I when I had this experience, mm. and. Um, I'd been fine, but then I, and as I said, I've been, I've been you know, very experienced with psychedelics for mm, 30 mm. years, all sorts of different yeah. types and a lot of them. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I kind of had a sort of a panic attack mm. whilst being really stoned um, on weed. And I went into this kind of, it sounded really like a schizophrenic sort of three hours where everything was perfect synchronicity around me but mm -hmm. in a very egocentric way mm -hmm. I mean, I've mm -hmm. talked to some friends of mine who've had schizophrenic episodes yeah. Yeah. Uh, and one of the characteristics is this kind of very egocentric uh, mm -hmm. fully egocentric experience of everything yeah. being synchronized yeah. around you even yeah. to the point where people talking to me were mm. God talking to me through that person, mm. that person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. 
you know the tv was communicating yeah. with me yeah. everything it was like absolutely everything was in fold, folded in synchronicity so yeah. I, after that experience i thought i that's that's i'm just I'm, <laughs> i need I'm, a break a good long time because when yeah. when yeah. you have those sort of experiences are very common when you're yeah. tripping on something yeah. but when it happens out of the blue mm. um when you when you're not doing it voluntarily it's a whole nother thing mm, yeah, yeah and yeah. i don't wanna, i don't want to go mad you know i yeah. think we can kind of yeah. romanticize madness as people that are into spirituality and all of that you know you think mm. of sort of mad saints and mm, like mm. that. oh yeah i'd like to be like that Would mm. you, yeah, when <laughs> <No>. <laughs> actually you know you have an experience like that it I, it really shook me up so even though i am uh an enthusiast of all of these things and mm. i think even you know even i had have had to admit that's i've, mm. I've got to take some got to take a very yeah. long break um mm. and i still know synchronicities <clears throat> a lot but i'm a little bit it's a bit wary sometimes of synchronicities yeah. when they start happening because I think, oh, here we go. <laughs> my go my yeah. going to the, the, the yeah. ending synchronicity vortex here. Yeah, um, yes, yeah, yeah. So that, I think I, I just wanted to bring that up. Mm. Anyone listening that, that synchronicity is a real thing and it's great yeah. and you can kind mm. of look out for it, but there is a level at which yeah. it goes beyond being something yeah. useful something health helpful uh healthy mm-hmm. and i mm. have known people that have become obsessed with with synchronicity yeah that, yeah. And, and yeah. Not, that, that uh and it hasn't been a good thing for them mm-hmm. I've, I've had friends that have had schizophrenia um yeah 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 uh, prop you know mm properly gone uh, schizophrenia for years mm-hmm. and it was not not a desirable state really mm-hmm. although when you're having it one of these episodes it feels it can feel amazing mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah i mean it's, it's funny with the whole plant medicine because like you i've been doing i've been plant medicine has been a part of my life since i was you know a teenager um and admittedly i think in my early 20s I experienced some profound healing, some real, um, yeah, some real transformative profound healings. And even later on throughout my life, it's been, there have been really profound and powerful insights and learnings and guidance. But now, since becoming a mother, I think as well, whenever I have, it's been obviously very rare that I do it because I don't have the time or the space really to do it. But on the odd occasion I have, it's almost like it's saying to me, why did you do that? Why, why are you here again? What do you want? We've told you everything you need to know. You know, what, why are you here? <laughs> and it's kind of like, and sometimes, I mean, I, I, I tried exploring big doses at one point when I was listening to Kalindi E talk. And I just, do you know, it's like, I don't think it's what I, I want anymore. It's not what I need because whatever I do do when I come back it's just like oh my god thank god you know because right now I've got this anchor called my body and it wakes up most mornings and I return to the same reality 
And when I do larger amounts of psychedelics, it's like, luckily, this hasn't died, and I've managed to come back to this reality again. But sometimes it's, it's almost like, I don't want to be there. I don't know. You know, I, I think I'm more uncertain about the psychedelic world now than I've ever been. And it might be de delving into higher doses. I think for me, I'm not so interested in that anymore because I just come back with a profound gratitude for having breath in my body and having this life and having this tree that is actually a solid tree. And it's, it's going to remain solid for the duration of our conversation you know, and if I go away and I come back, it's still here for now. And it's... I, I think not everybody's cut out for it. You know, it's a bit like mm. surfing. For example, if you take surfing, some people <clears throat> surf big waves. They do those yeah. enormous, yes. you know, Jaws waves and things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, that's what they're into. And then there are mm. other people that like surfing other what types of waves and, mm. and, and that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So, you know, I think the the dosage thing is some people mm, are mm. out for, for that, but not everybody yeah, is. Yeah. And I think, mm. um, I don't know Kalindi's stuff very much, mm. for example, mm. but I think there are people that say everybody should be if, taking large doses. And if you're not, yeah. You're, yeah. Not, you're an idiot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I, don't no, I strongly people. disagree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also there's a time and a place, isn't there? There's a time and a place and sometimes it's really right. Yeah. And doing smaller amounts and doing therapeutic amounts and doing microdosing, you know, it seems to be really powerful and having really amazing. And I think that, you know, for a lot of people, there's a there's a, a, a sweet spot where it's it's it connects you, it, it opens you. But also I think um I sp you know, I listen a lot to Pat McCarb, she's a Dene Navajo elder. And she's very much into um, what is it they say in the Lakota um, that w they do it off their own juice. And I'm also, you know, in the last sort of four or five years, I've come across breath work and doing, you know, real prolonged, deep amount of breath work. And I think I prefer the cleanness. And it's like when we take psychedelics, we don't know what we're opening ourselves up to. We don't know what beings are latching onto us or coming through us. And I know that in my journeys when I was younger, there were some beings that were, that were guides that were working with divine love and divine will and were very supportive. But I know there were times when I, I was sent down tricky paths and I was distracted and I was told, you know, it, it can be tricky. And so I think we really, we need real proper guides when we're doing this. We need real um people that are really grounded and rooted in these arts and these practices and can really see what's going on very clearly. Um, because we are, you know, it's all very, it's like the new thing and a lot of young people are going out. And I, I do trust the plants. I do trust that the plants are the teachers at the end of the day. And they're the ones that guide us ultimately. It's a, it's a, it's, it's, I mean, it's a whole nother big, long conversation, isn't it? Yeah. I just want yeah. to touch into that at the end, because it, it is, mm. it, it's been you know part of your life and yeah yeah. yeah i'm getting low on battery now so i think yeah. we well, let, let's find... let's let's wrap it up so um before we so we finish the finish is there uh you said you've got a youtube channel that yes look at yeah i don't i haven't put much on it for a long time i'm i kept my gob shut during covid 
um, because there were so many changing uh, things going on and it was all shifting so quickly. So I haven't uploaded much lately, but I've got Welsh Mountain Yeshi, like Welsh Mountain Yeti, but Yeshi is my YouTube channel. And um, yeah, there's an intention to get a bit more momentum and start sharing a bit more with that soon. Um, and yeah, I'm pretty, again, I live a natural life. I'm not that technologically driven. I'm not that financially in um, driven. So I haven't like got a massive following. I'm not out there trying to accumulate followers and I'm not out there trying to become famous or earn millions of pounds to do whatever, because I don't really want to do that much other than live a nice, simple life. So, um, yeah, you can't really find me in many places <laughs> and, um, yeah, I've not got much of an online presence, but many, many, many people in Wales know me. Um, and I often hold space at, at festivals, um, Green Gathering, Unearthed Festival, sometimes Buddha Field. I sometimes teach at some of those as well and continue, yeah, plan to continue to do so. So maybe people can catch me at those places or find me on YouTube. Well, it's mm -hmm. been an absolute delight, Yeshe, to hang out with you for this time and hear about your yeah. very, very interesting life and how deep you've gone into all of these things. Yeah, and continue to do so. Yeah, yeah. May, yeah. may it benefit many people. Yeah, and you too, Ralph. Thanks for your awesome podcast. Really uh, enjoy it and appreciate listening to them. Yeah, great stuff. Cool. All right, lots of love. See you, See you later in the summer. Take yeah. care. Bye-bye. I made all the music that I use in my podcasts. If you'd like to hear more of my music, please visit SoundCloud and check out my profile, Ralph Cree.